but it's the idea that we're not actually doing things for kids. We're providing options for students to become good strategic learners who make good decisions about how best to learn. Welcome to Education Rx. The education system in the U.S. is sick, and we all need to find ways to heal it. I'm Holly Bronson. I'm Shannon Donaway. Together, we have almost 50 years of experience working as professionals in a school setting. We may not have all the answers, but we're looking for people who have a piece of the solution puzzle. This is Education Rx. Okay, today we have a great interview for you guys. We are talking to James Robinson from Indiana University. He is an assistant research scientist at the Indiana Institute on Disability and Community. And he used to be a special education teacher for many years, which I think is part of why he's passionate about inclusion. Absolutely. And some of the things you're going to want to listen for in this interview is he provides a lot of information on research that Indiana University has done on performance and test scores academically for students involved in inclusive classrooms and not just students that have IEPs or special education, but your general education students and how they performed after being in inclusive classrooms. You're also going to want to listen for a place where he starts talking about the three main approaches that they teach to schools or districts that are wanting to begin to promote inclusive practices. They're very insightful. Yeah, and there's so much more. So let's talk to James, and then we'll talk after about some of the details. Perfect. All right, so today we're talking with James Robinson, and you're from University of Indiana, am I correct? It's Indiana University, because we're, we're really specific. We're not the University of Indiana, although people like to do that sometimes. But no, it's Indiana University. Well, we and I'm from New Mexico, and we have... New Mexico State, and then we have University of New Mexico. So I get that. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about who you are. Well, so I am an assistant research scientist at the Indiana Institute on Disability and Community, which is part of Indiana University. And within that institute, we have a number of different centers that do work on different areas around like adult living, aging concerns, early childhood. And my center happens to be the one on, we call ourselves the Center on Education and Lifelong Learning, but we focus on generally K-12 education issues. We've been around for 25 years or so. I've been there for close to 15. And we do a lot of what, you know, we look at research into practice as being sort of the, our calling card. There's a lot of work that gets done in terms of what works in education by folks in the research field, but it doesn't necessarily translate into education settings where teachers actually live and breathe every day. And mm -hmm. so what we've been doing for close to 25 years has been taking uh, work that one way or another revolves around inclusion. And we try to help schools, districts, principals, superintendents, other practitioners, and definitely frontline educators make sense of that within their own context. Nice. And I actually have been really lucky to sit in some of trainings that you and your colleague were providing for my district, Las Lunas Schools in New Mexico. 
And our district is looking to move into full inclusion. And so I've been getting to participate in some of those trainings. And you guys have done some very cool research around inclusion. And I think that that is something that people need to hear. I think there's a lot of misconception about what inclusion is. People are thinking, oh, okay, if my kid has an IEP, they're not in a special ed classroom, they're in general education, that's inclusion. And it's so much bigger than that. And you guys do such a good job about really looking at different aspects of it. And that's part of why we had you here today. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, inclusion has evolved and taken on a lot of different names really since, well, since before special education actually existed, right? I mean, we've always had kids who vary one way or another in our schools. And, you know, the nice thing is, is over the course of time, we've had different laws and legislation and practices that have helped broaden the net and, and open the doors for folks. But, you know, we're still, in our, in our from our perspective, we're still, you know, we have a lot of distance to travel to to really get to what we consider to be really effective, inclusive practices. And and sadly, sometimes we even feel like we're going, we've gone backwards in, in places <laughs> in terms of that. So yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of work to be done. I feel like that sometimes as well, working in the schools. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think one of the things that brought us to a topic for this season of inclusion Last season, in our first season, we were looking at some of the really strong backlash from COVID that was very centered on social-emotional issues. And social-emotional issues have been coming to the surface for a while. It wasn't just COVID that made that happen. And I think that's also true of inclusion. Like you said, you guys have been working with that for 15 plus years. But right now, I think a lot of educators and families, people who are moving to homeschool or charter schools or trying to find alternative ways for education, part of that is stemming from this, can we keep doing the same thing we've always done? We're not getting the results we need. What can we do? And so our whole goal in having this podcast is to really bring ideas to people and get people talking because we can't keep doing things the way we're doing. And one of the things I really liked when I was sitting in training with you and your partner was that you guys were looking not just at how to do good inclusion and those practices, but you got research about it and not just the students who had unique needs, but every student. So, so yeah, we've, we've been involved. So about 20 years ago, my colleague and and my director, Sandy, Dr. Sandy Cole, uh, she before I was even at our center, she had done an inclusion study, and it's long enough ago that I'm not going to get much many of the details right. But one of the things they they were able to identify was that students in inclusive classrooms back then were able, they were able to show that not only were kids with with disabilities benefiting, but kids who are not identified were also benefiting. But more recently, we really wanted to get a a more definitive look at what was going on with with inclusion in Indiana, at least. And so Dr. Cole and then our, our colleague, Dr. Hardy Murphy, the three of us, and, and again, those two were really the leads on the on the research, but we, we looked at first, third through eighth grade, and then we followed up with a high school level study. And we and we did a lot of hardcore statistics. And I'm, I'm a qualitative research researcher, which is why I was definitely not the lead on this one. <laughs> but what we did is we did a, a statistical modeling where we were able to take huge cohorts of students using our state testing scores. Um, we got a huge data dump from the Department of Education, and we were able to 
basically follow statistical twins. So you could have a group, you start with a group of third graders who had, you know, every third grader who got 400 on their state test when they were in third grade was matched with another, another big giant group of fourth grade or third graders who had 400. And then we could start selecting for different, different characteristics and, and demographics. So we could, first of all, look at, are they, what's their disability category? We could look, do they come from a low socioeconomic status? Do they control for race and other, other things? But the main thing we could look at was the degree to which they were included in the general setting. Mm -hmm. And what was super, super exciting about this was that hands down, if you were in high inclusion, which we count as 80% or more. And uh, like, no matter how we ran the analyses, no matter what we controlled for variables in terms of those other de demographics, place mattered. In other words, if you were in high inclusion, your performance on those state test measures was far greater, far higher. I mean, it was, it was wow. they used that what they, the, ter the term we use in, in that kind of research is just statistically significant. I mean, it, it, right. it it's really clear that that's the that's the treatment that that mattered. And then we we went ahead and looked at it at high school, and we were able to look at some other factors. We, we looked at some test scores, but we also looked at graduation rates. In Indiana, we have a a couple different. At the time we were doing the study, there are a couple different diplomas available. There's the general diploma. There's the core forty or college bound diploma that kids were able to get. We were able to look at those factors. We were able to look at kids who had to re graduate with a with a waiver, meaning that they didn't take the state test at all, which is actually something okay. you don't want. And again, kids who were in high inclusion did better on both, uh, were more likely to get either form of the diploma, they were less likely to get that waiver, and they did better on those test scores. And again, it didn't matter, you know, no matter how we controlled for those other demographic variables, it became really unmistakable that inclusion is what what makes a difference. You know, so that was that was that was encouraging, given that that's what we've we've you know dedicated a lot of our time to. It's nice to know that hey, you haven't just been toiling around on a on, on a dream. You, you actually know it. it, it it's it's working. <laughs> well, and you mentioned that you were looking at testing scores, but then I like that you were also looking at other factors that are measuring success in schools because one thing we're going to be talking about in this season is we're really going to be looking at standardized testing not just the NAEP testing that tests the fourth eighth and twelfth graders but that annual standardized testing that states do every year and one of the people that we're going to be speaking with in this season is Dr. Passy Salberg who at one point was working for the was working as the minister of education in finland when they were trying to make a lot of reform and he's written a book that's talking about what made that reform so successful and really it's geared toward united states canada and england like what we should be looking at and one oh. of the things they talk about is we test too much oh yeah and and honestly i gotta say i i agree with that well, <laughs> We test too much, and and I, I you know, I, again, I'd be curious to see their work. But you know, what what doesn't work for us? And again, when I was working with the folks in out in Los Lunas, we, we were talking about co-teaching and collaboration. You know, one of the things that I I'm at least I'm made to understand about Finland, and again, you know, I I could be out of date on this, is that the amount of time that teachers are given for processing, planning, and collaboration 
as a proportion of their their work, whether you know measure it by the day, the week, the month, or the school year, is is a lot. You know, it's a lot more humane. And so, even if you're, I mean, it's fine to give yourself. You know, we want to have some kind of testing. And you know, certainly right. the 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 binge of testing that started in the two early two thousands, and and things like No Child Left Behind had good intentions in that, you know, we're not going to let schools hide their their marginalized populations behind the performance of of a, the strong couple you know the strong groups that were traditionally doing well and so getting those numbers was 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 important right but like you said we, we do it so much it takes up such a priority and we haven't increased the amount of time that teachers educators and others have to process collaborate and 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 work on those things so all we have is a bunch of sifting and sorting and saying, well, this group is is doing poorly, but it doesn't really chain, give us any opportunities to think about what we want to do instructionally. And in fact, it increases the likelihood that we're going to pathologize those kids who are struggling rather than actually investigate the practices that we do as educators. Yeah. And I think that when we're looking at inclusion, and as we're talking about it and, and that it's such a broader term than just kids who have disabilities and getting them into general ed or whatever, the whole concept, and we, we got to speak with the authors from Inclusive Learning 365, and they gave a beautiful definition to it that basically inclusion, full inclusion means every kid, identified or not, whatever their skill set is, you're presenting them with the information in enough ways that they can access it and engage with it. And when I was sitting in your training and watching some of the videos you had of the inclusive practices that you literally go around and train people in doing, I was seeing that. I was seeing those co-teaching models where they had different styles and they had different ways, whether one teacher pulled off a small group or one person went up and worked with a group of kids near the board or whatever. I was seeing all these different styles that worked so well together. And I know they were getting videotaped, so maybe they were on their best behavior, but it looked like the kids were engaging at a level that honestly, sometimes I get discouraged that I don't see that in the schools that I work in. Well, you know, so and this is this is good news for you guys because I, I was just out this past Thursday in one of your elementaries and you know, it can't be, it can't be because of me because that was only a month ago, but they were, you know, in a couple of these classrooms, I was, uh, you know, there was some really good collaborative work going on. And I, you know, I don't, I don't judge it by, you know, I think often there's this, there's this kind of idea around co-teaching that you should be able to walk in and not know which teacher is which. And I think that's kind of cool. And when it happens, it's me, I, I, I don't get freaked out if that's not the case. You should be able to walk in and not tell which students are which. And that's that's a little more important. But you know, there again, I could, there are times where that's going to be the thing. But what is really important is what you're describing is that you want to see kids all participating, engaging, connecting with the content as equal as equal opportunists. And one of the things that we we really emphasize is that with inclusion. What you're able to do is provide both educators an opportunity to bring their skills into the into the general setting. You know, when you see good co-teaching models, what you what you what you're not seeing is a teacher who might be doing something really great down the hallway in what I like to call special town, 
<laughs> but no, really. So like something really great is going on in special town for this kid or this group of kids who are identified. But so often, whatever happens there does not migrate. The kids might come back. They probably do, actually. They do come back to that to the general setting. But whatever magic was happening there doesn't ever show up. And so the nice thing about co-teaching and collaboration and inclusion is it forces the issue. It says, says look, we have to figure, figure out not just what works, but how to make it work in this context. And there's just really, there aren't that many good mechanisms for that beyond collaborative teaching because, you know, the professional development research is pretty clear that if I just tell you about a strategy, if I just tell you about an intervention or an idea, about 10, 20% of us will go back and do that thing in our classroom. We need practice and feedback in the actual context where we're doing it. And so that that's what co-teaching I think allows but if, if the kids aren't there, or if they're just being pulled out or whatever, if we're doing push-in, but still essentially a de facto segregated setting within the class, there's very little impetus and, and um, mechanism for that work to be articulated. So give us a little detail because you're using terms that we want people to really understand when sure. you say, oh, I couldn't tell the difference with the students um, or the teachers. Explain kind of what you're, what you're so referring me- to. Yeah, so when we talk about co-teaching, the, the first thing is to give all the credit in the world to Marilyn Friend. She literally, literally wrote the book on co-teaching. She uh, And Lynn Cook was was her co-author on some of the earliest works around co-teaching. So she, she for, at least for, for our work, we're heavily indebted to how she kind of both laid out the, the, the whys and the hows and the whats of co-teaching. So I don't want, I don't want to take credit where it's not mine. But what she identified was like a handful of different models that people can can use to co-teach. And there's they're sort of a progression, but basically we talk about what we often see to, and maybe too often see, which is like one teach, one assist models, or one teach, one observe models, where there's a gen ed teacher typically leading the class, and then there's a specialist teacher off on the side doing something. Sometimes that something can be really good and important. Sometimes that can be really intentional and planned observation of, of students. It can be intentional and planned observation of each other as teachers. Am I, you know, my, a classic example I have is a, is a teacher who had gotten some feedback that they called on the boys more than they called on the girls in their classroom. And so they are working on improving that. And wow, what a great resource to have a co-teacher in there. Hey, look, I'm going to take a random period of 10 minutes a couple times throughout the class today. And I'm going to tally how many times you were not going to know what I'm doing it because I'm going to be doing other stuff, but I'm going to tally how many times you call on boys versus girls. And we're going to get those data so we can, you know, and, and what a great way to have that embedded professional development there. So one teacher, one assist, one teach, one observe can be really useful if it's, if it's intentional, but a lot of times, because of all the reasons, because we don't have planning time, because we don't take advantage of our planning time or whatever those things are, we get what I call plug and play co-teaching where the special ed teacher shows up often late because, hey, they got called for a behavior thing and they they roll in and kind of read the room and see what's happening and then go around and help kids kind of on the side. Typically that means they're helping the kids who are identified Mm-hmm. And 
typically, I mean, that, at that point, you're kind of like, well, boy, we could pay somebody a lot less money to do this, right? <laughs> it's, 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 and, and, and that sounds cost, but like, I, I always really feel like if I'm going to be paying for two full salaries and benefits and all that stuff and expertise and knowledge and skill to be in a classroom, I ought to get something more than that. But right. so, that, so that's one of Marilyn. Marilyn also talks a lot about what she calls it, parallel teaching and alternative teaching. And this is where you can take advantage of two teachers who one's leading a small group doing some, some skill reteaching or remediation, or maybe even some, some enrichment work or some, some accelerated work while the other teachers leading a larger group. And again, that's, that's a pretty cool model when it works, but again, it's easy to fall into the trap of that side group always being a special ed teacher with those kids right mm -hmm. and where whereas parallel tends to be more of a balance we're kind of we have equal size groups so we're just kind of blending a, you know, one group might be learning with one approach where the other group's learning with a different approach and then there are things like station teaching which is pretty self-explanatory where you know we just set up kids to do different activities and the two teachers either run a station or two or monitor the whole thing and then the last big big approach is what what Marilyn calls team teaching which is a form of co-teaching where it, it it really is that seamless kind of marriage you know where two teachers are kind of cyclically linked they read each other's minds they finish each other's sentences they run a really organic kind of classroom kind of seamlessly moving back and forth and in the best situations those actually kind of spin off into those other models intentionally as the class progresses through the day or the week or whatever because if it's only that full te teaming then really you just kind of have a big large one size fits all class and that's not great so that that's kind of the, the the big picture for maryland's models and that you know that's that's the core of our training but i i actually argue that if we don't if we don't start with really good practices as professional partners and establishing how and why we're going to teach together those models tend to migrate toward the, the lower kind of simpler ones. And when you go to districts and so I guess they call you. So a district's already made a decision, right? That they want to go inclusion and fully inclusive. How long does that process take for you to sort of take them through that? Well we have see we have we have what we like to do and then what we we have what we get to do. Right. <laughs> right. So with co-teaching specifically, you know, what I like to do is what I'm what I'm ultimately doing with Los Lunas out there is, you know, you all had made the decision to pursue a more inclusive approach for your schools. And, you know, everybody out there would be the first to admit, admit that you did it. And then for you know, the first half of the year, let's see how it goes. And then then Sandy and I showed up in January. You know, one could make the argument that, well, I'll, I'll let me not go down that path, but like, it, we would prefer to be there at the very beginning of that conversation. Like what, what is the change process going to look like? We've been, I don't want to go down the implementation science pathway, but we actually have been doing a lot of work with the national implementation research folks out of university of North Carolina. Oh, and right. we're, we're, we're really, we're really firm believers that a very intentional process of implementation for an initiative like co-teaching or inclusion or universal design for learning or whatever it is, if you if you follow those that process that implementation science kind of suggests, you would get you end up getting really, really more sustainable results. 
but we don't always get to do that. So sometimes, you know, we come in halfway through the year like we did in this project. But what I appreciate about this project is we also follow it with coaching. And so, you know, just as I was talking about that embedded professional development that you get with two co-teachers, what we really ask districts to, to, to contract with us to do, and they don't always either have the resources or their interest in doing so, is to let us follow up with on-site visits to buildings. Because too often, somebody like me shows up with a PowerPoint, you know, and I, I you know, walk around with my pointer and clicker and say a bunch of cool stuff, and hopefully people laugh at my jokes. And then if that's it, all they remember are the dumb jokes. And that's not their fault, but, you know, teachers are busy. They have, yeah. they have, as we said, they don't have nearly as much time as their Finland co colleagues, I think. But either way, you know, they, they go back to their classrooms and, you know, they may have, you know, they'll have the handouts and they'll have the downloaded documents and they'll have the memories of what we talked about. And a non-zero number of them will, will pursue what, you know, what they need to, and in fact, you know, I saw that last week, you know, after a month of time since my visit, that, and that's great. But the ability for me to go in and sit with teachers and talk about, look, this is what I saw going on in your classroom. Tell me what, how you're approaching this. Tell me what are the particulars to your classroom? Because co-teaching is not a prescription. It's not a, you know, X equals Y sort of situation. It's, it's an organic process between two professionals who come with different experiences, different sets of skills, different confidence and competence, both in the content and, and classroom management, all those different things. And so, you know, I can say that one teach, one observe is, you know, a lesser form than parallel teaching, but in order for you to feel comfortable doing those models, you know, there, there's a lot that needs to be done. And so what we, you know, what we try to do with districts is to follow up with a rigorous coaching regimen that gets me or somebody else who works with us into teachers' classrooms in one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two, you know, what I call co-investigations, which, you know, the operating question is, hey, here's this, here's this process or this innovation or this tool, in this case, co-teaching, how do we make sense of it within your context and your school and your students? So. And I noticed that you set up training within our, the district that I'm in, where you're working with administrators oh, yeah. and then also with teachers and really helping administrators get a handle on all the pieces that they're going to have to coordinate and get into play. And I think that's really significant part of what you're doing. I want to, and I'll give, first of all, give credit to your district leadership folks, because, you know, when they, when they contacted us last, I don't know, October or whenever, whenever it was, you know, we, we immediately said, you know, we can do a lot of different things with you guys. And, you know, obviously part of it is, you know, what kind of resources and funding is available because things are, are can get pricey and all that. But still, what we said was, you know, if, if you guys are willing to, to do it, we would really you will get a lot more out of this project if we can work at it from a leadership perspective. So after we did, you know, a day, day of training for two different groups, you know, same, same training with two different groups, mm -hmm. you know, we actually, at the end of that, if you remember, we, we asked the teachers and participants, Hey, you've heard now a lot about how it sh this should work in the abstract, right? The ideal 
platonic right. perfection. You know, this is the ideal form of co-teaching according to James Robinson as channeled through, or, or according to Marilyn Fred as channeled through James Robinson. They then gave us a lot of feedback. We had a protocol to get like, what is, what is gonna make this work? What do you see as some potential barriers? And so we took that the next day to their building leaders and the district leaders and said, you know, let's let's hash out some of these things. Like, you know, what is what what does scheduling look like? How does what does IEP, you know, what, what we what Sandy and I call IEP hygiene, what does that look like in terms of making sure that we're not just clumping a bunch of kids into a co-taught section because it's a co-taught section, right? So their willingness to do that, and, and in fact, and maybe you don't know this, Holly, they're, they're going to, well, in late March, Sandy and our colleague, Hardy Murphy, who I mentioned is one of the authors on the study, they have two more days of work with the district leadership, and uh, I, I don't know everybody's going to be involved in that, but they're going to be looking at further questions around inclusion and be, begin to dig into uh, implementation science a little bit. So. I mean, it, it's a it's a really good example from our perspective, having done this for a long time, of a district having having the vision to say, look, we we need support to to do this the right way. To go back to your one of your questions that I think I'm not answering because I'm probably not answering 17 and then <laughs> ranting about a million things that I want to talk about. But you mentioned how long does this process take? I think right. that's what you think. And you know, it Michael Fullen is one of the the you know big all-time gurus around school change literature and, and you know he talks about you know an elementary school can take as much as you know three to five years to change how it does things you know secondary schools depending on their size can take five to seven and a school district is all you know we're, we can look at seven to ten years if we're really looking to there's that whole there's that whole hierarchy that Fullen talks about of beliefs practices and skills right Right. And you, you kind of have to change all of them at, at the same time. And that can be hard, but it takes a while too. Like, so a lot of what Sandy and I worked with on those two days where we're training teachers were, you know, the, in the morning beliefs, you know, what do we know about inclusion? Why is inclusion a good idea? Not just for students, but also for educators. The rest of the day was a lot about skills. You know, how do you co-teach? What are the things that you do? You know, there's the models. Mm -hmm there's communication skills, there's all those different pieces that we talk about. So we talked about beliefs and skills a lot, but it's the practices that really are the link, the, the link between that, right? You know, how do we schedule teachers? How, who do we hire? How do we schedule students? How do we build this thing? What do we, you know, what do we do with those two days before school when teachers are on contract? All those different things that come into play, if we don't address all three of those pieces, hard to get those changes, but to systemically constantly be organizing our work around those three at a district level can take quite a while. And that's people are impatient. Yeah. Because you have, I mean, first and foremost, because you have somebody's little daughter staring at you saying, I, what, I'm supposed to wait seven years to get things right for, <laughs> for her? Like she'll graduate or not. Right, I mean, or worse, she won't graduate. You, I don't have time to wait because she won't. She won't graduate if we don't fix this for her today, and so that's that's completely legit. Or you have teachers who are like having to deal with a lot of uncertainty and upheaval. I mean, again, I was there, and not I'm not the only 
jerk with a PowerPoint that your colleagues in Los Lunas have had to deal with, right? Because they're, you know, you have new curriculum coming in, you have other things that you guys are, districts don't stand still for very long on anything. So you, your teachers are overwhelmed. And so when they're saying, oh, James brought this thing, but it's going to take us five years to figure it out. They're like, great, see ya. I, I don't blame Well, and that's an issue within the political structure of a school district that they'll try something. And as they're kind of turning that Titanic, as they're steering that boat, everybody gives up and then they go to something new. And that happens a lot with curriculum. Yep. I have seen that happen a lot with curriculum where just when the teachers get a handle on it and feel like, okay, I've got it down. It's taken me a couple of years and bam, we've got new curriculum. And I think with the concept of going to full inclusion, I get that there are all of the factors that get in our way and slow us down, but we've got to figure out sort of how can we streamline this process in such a way that within at least the first year, you're starting to implement some of those strategies. And I think it, as a special service provider, I'm an OT, Shannon's a speech therapist. As medical providers, when we work with people who need to learn a new concept or get back a skill that they've lost, maybe from an accident or an injury, whatever, we always are looking at what we call generalization. So if I teach you this skill in the hospital, but then you go home and you can't do it, that is a real thing. And so if we're teaching in a training teachers how to do this thing, like you said, if somebody doesn't come in and provide some sort of coaching in the environment they're going to do it in, it's really hard to generalize that. And most people don't feel like they have the individual skills to make those generalizations without a little bit of support. And sometimes it doesn't take as much as they think it's going to need, like just a little bit of support and a little bit of, yeah, you're doing it right. Oh, okay. Their confidence builds. And now they're really willing to kind of stretch out and, and try things. But that is true of every human on the planet. You learn something. And if we put kids in a special ed classroom, like you mentioned, and teach them something, maybe money skills. If we don't also take them into the community and teach them how to use those money skills in the community or at home or in the general ed classroom, they're not going to generalize. That's true for our students. That's oh, yeah. true for our teachers, our administrators. So how can we get people generalizing and implementing quicker? That, that seems like the burden, right? Well, and, and my wife, the special ed teacher would, would tell you, don't even bother doing money in, a, in, a, in an isolated place. <laughs> get out in the place and use, like, what's the point? Because you, you're never going to get it. But no, but that, that's, that's, that is the kind of holy grail is school change that is quick enough to get to the classroom level where teachers are getting feedback during application while the leadership is being methodical and deliberate in making sure structures are in place to support that over time. I mean, that's kind of why we like implementation science is that it, it really does force leadership personnel to say, look, what's driving this innovation that we're trying to do? And similarly, what, what are the barriers to it? You know, mm -hmm. one of the things that teachers often say is, well, we, we can just wait this one out. It'll go, it'll go away. And they're, they're not wrong. 
right? That's true. <laughs> we do see that. Well, or what happens is it won't act, where they may be wrong sometimes is that it doesn't necessarily go away, but it doesn't, nobody does it anymore. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I've been in schools, I'm like, hey, do you, do you guys do PBIS? And they reach back and there's a dusty binder somewhere on their side. <laughs> like, yeah, remember that? Yeah. But like, what's important is, is a district saying, okay, let's do an, an inventory of all the initiatives we have. And if, if, if full inclusion is where we want to head, right? Mm -hmm. Then we should be asking ourselves for any initiative we have in our, in our district that we're currently doing, does it align with that vision? Nice. Right? Like, what do yes. we actually mean by full inclusion? And, and I would argue that most districts need some work there to start with. Like, what, what do we actually mean? Because there there there's an array of possible definitions for full inclusion. And I'm not pedantic about that in terms of, you know, I can think. Tell me, tell me some of the ways or you were saying what full inclusion looks like, what the vision is, what do you see as some of those options? Well, I mean, you don't have to go through them all, but give us no, like no. three or I mean, four. Obviously, I think, so what is non-negotiable for me is that full inclusion means that everybody is a full member of the, the school, the classroom, the district, whatever that is, meaning that they're, that, when decisions are made that 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 those kids needs whoever there's not a single group of kids whose whose needs are not part of the calculus when we make a decision and that can be a simple so like i'll give i'll give a good example so we have a district near us who is uh, a model universal design for learning district in the in nationally they're they're connected with cast and udl and they they, they do really great work they they arranged their cafeteria procedures to follow along with universal design. Oh wow! And what they meant is like, well, and here's just here, here's how it works. Like I'm going through, I'm a kid, and I'm going through the cafeteria line, right? And there may be some options for lunch, right? I can have the chicken sandwich, or I can have the burrito. Let's just say that, right? And a typical experience might be the kid saying to the to the lunch lady, "I want the burrito." Right. Well, what if I am nonverbal? What if I have X, Y, or Z? What if I have selective mutism? Whatever the heck is going on with me? What if actually saying I want a burrito is not possible? Hmm. Well, we can universally design the, the cafeteria experience so that we have options for what would in UDL terms would be action and expression, right? In terms of choosing my, so that my lunch experience is equal equal or similar to my peers, right? So so full inclusion ultimately means that. Like in, in every aspect of our, every decision we make, we don't cut corners at any point. Every decision in every student is equal in terms of how we, the, the degree to which we think of them. Similarly, we we start from the perspective that everybody should be in their homeschool and in their general setting unless there's a really damn good reason for that not to be happening. Right. And again, especially with younger students, I really don't have many good reasons for kids, no matter their disability, to not be in the gen ed setting. I just cannot possibly think of many good reasons for it. 
They're That's what I was going to say. What would that reason be? I can't think either. I can see some medical situations that might need to be dealt with in very short-term situations, and that's about it. Mm -hmm. like, I, I really, I don't, you know, I, I just don't have them. You know, as you get older, you know, we talked about money, right? I can see where the actual inclusive classroom makes sense would be in the community, like, mm -hmm. you know, so... I need, that's the appropriate skill for me, appropriate challenge for me is to go learn how to use money skills or learn how to ride the bus or whatever that is. And learning calculus is not. So I, I, I could argue, the argument that I don't need, that I don't need to be in a calculus classroom because I need to be out there learning how to read the bus schedule and get on the bus on time and all that so I can get to my job. That, I, I'm, I, I can go there, but in fifth grade, I, I just don't, I'm just not there with that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think one of the things you were talking about, like with the cafeteria, and I know I've been in districts and I've heard of districts that do that with multiple things on the playground, having a large uh, board that has all the different pictures where kids can make selections and communicate. And it's right there. So they don't have to bring a communication device with them or like in the cafeteria where they may have like things that the student can point to or a button they can push that would say their order out loud. And honestly, Shannon's the communication expert. She is so good at this stuff. But I know that there are ways that we can look at a school setting, whether it's, do we have ramps? Do Can the student's wheelchair come up to a water fountain and can they get a drink? Can they get into the restrooms? Can they go into the theater at the school? All of those pieces, those pieces that we need to be looking at, not just in schools, but in communities, and I think when we do it in schools, it parlays into the community being more open to those things. And one thing that we try to bring out in every episode is to remind people, even if you don't have kids in schools, even if you're not a teacher or an educator, even if you think you have no investment in education, these kids will be adults leading our country. If we don't figure out how to give them the skills they need to be good leaders and, and thinking about how to give equal access to everyone and making decisions that are founded in good rationale. If we're not teaching them how to do that, it's scary. And honestly, well, right now, I'm a little scared about some well, of these kids growing up. <laughs> but, but that, and that's the thing, that's again, that goes back to our inclusion research, which is, you know, those kids, you know, again, this test score is fine, Let's move those out of the picture, but you're more likely to graduate with a diploma. You're more likely to graduate with a, a college-bound diploma. We also, we didn't do the study, but the, uh, when we were doing our lit review, you know, we, there were studies in the last 10 years that talk about students being more likely to be part of student extracurricular activities, which we know correlates with graduation. Kids in high inclusion were likely to have um, solid employment or go on to post-secondary or stay in post. Like, and those are important things because, like, for the very mercenary reasons you're talking about, we don't want our we don't want our country to suck. I actually would like to be able to retire and have somebody else take care of stuff for a while. I mean, not soon, right? But, but you know what I'm saying? Like, and yeah, they're all they're all super needy because we didn't do our job. You know. Well, and then the research also shows that kids who don't need accommodations or supports benefit from others being in their classrooms as well. Well, 
Yes, they do. And, and the entire population is benefiting from an inclusive. And, and that's the, these are the parts that I really would love, what we would love to study. And one of the, you know, what Sandy and I and Hardy, we kick around are, first of all, like when we know, when it says high inclusion works, you know, place matters, that's cool. What we're, what we're not able to find out in that work, just because of the nature of the study is what the qualitatively, what were those settings like? And because, because again, it's the whole state of Indiana, we don't know really. And like, and in, in fact, they certainly probably varied quite a bit. And so it'd be interesting to find out like, you know, not all inclusion is created equal, not all high inclusion is created equal. What What's happening in those settings? And then to your, to your question, Shannon, like what, we're pretty sure that kids who don't, who aren't identified do pretty well in those settings. You know, I have a hunch about what's happening there. And, uh, and that it's, we are providing a range of, uh, of instructional approaches within that context and giving kids options because any kid might benefit from an option, just like, you know, Holly was there. I, I like to make the example of, of how Target stores, their entrance is universally designed. There's no ramp between, and there's no curb between the parking lot and the entrance to the building. They separate it with those big red balls and everybody goes in the same way and they don't even notice that it's accessible by a wheelchair, right? right? I love that. Right, and, and and so my guess is that in inclusive settings, more and more things that support good learning are available to a wider range of kids, but we don't know. I mean, that, that would be a that'd be a cool thing to study. It'd be, it'd be very tricky to turn it into a quantitative study um, for a lot of reasons, but- sure. I don't like quantitative stuff that much anyway. So. <laughs> well, and one thing when we were speaking with the authors of Inclusive 365, Inclusive Learning 365, one of the things that we kind of sidebarred and started talking about is how what we're teaching kids is changing because of how our world is changing. So the new AI sorts of tech that are taking over things and teachers freaking out and being like, I don't want my kids using chat, GPT, I want them to write their own papers. But the truth of the matter is there's no way to stop that. It is happening and people are going to use it. And there was a time when search engines like Google, you know, teachers were saying, I want them to go to a library and look it up. The truth is as humans, it's in our nature to try and go for the thing that's gonna be the quickest, easiest solution. So we know kids are gonna use this technology and we know that artificial intelligence is getting, I mean, it's exponentially getting faster, quicker, doing more, all of those things. Maybe teaching kids traditional skills needs to morph a little bit. And yeah. that is inclusive. It goes across every skill level. Can you take the information you're getting and figure out if it's good information? Where did it come from? What, what is it telling you? Is it real? Is well, it factual? And that's actually, that, that, the, the cool thing there is that's not actually a new skill. It's just, it's a new skill in a different context, right? Right, yes. I, I'll, I'll tell you what, just be, like an hour before the, I came on this, one of my colleagues, she emailed everybody saying, that, oh, I, she was with her son, they're jacking around with chat GPT. <laughs> and she gave it the prompt, write a welcome letter, an introductory letter to participants in a PBIS workshop. And she sent us the letter that chat GPT sent Holy God, I really need to find a different line of work because this thing was, it, 
it literally could have been written by anybody in my center. It wow. was specific. It was detailed. It sounded exactly like the letter you would get before a workshop on PBIS. I mean, it was, yeah, mm. I, yes, we did. We're, we're in a weird, crazy place right now. Well, but, and if teachers show students <laughs> that they're aware of what's happening in the student's world and bring that technology forward and maybe say, okay, as a class, we're going to use chat GPT and write a paper. And then we're going to sit here and break it apart. Well, you know, we're going to talk about, was this a good use of time? Was this, you know, did this move us forward? Did, would I have benefited by doing it on my own? Like some, I don't know, whatever well, to get the students it, thinking. Like this. I mean, I think about like spell check, but nobody, nobody tut tuts about spell check anymore. Everybody just <laughs> accepts that it's a thing that we use. And it's actually, generally it's a, you, it's a net positive in terms of our ability to support or Grammarly is, is, right. is, is, and so there's certainly a world where you could say, you know, I could imagine chat GPT and other things like that being a really good resource for a kid who needs some really basic, you know, it's it, just like at the foundational level does not have the ability to get much on the page at all. Right. Right. But has generally, okay, when we start there. You know, and then I think, yeah, obviously there's some new teaching that needs to come in in terms of what do you do once you've generated it from that? How do we, there's a lot of other questions, but yeah, let's, let's look at it as, as an opportunity in terms of providing options for action or expression, to use the UDL terminology, as opposed to the world coming to an end, which it might be anyway. <laughs> right. I mean, but, but if that's, if the world's coming to an end, chat GPT is not going to be the reason, it's going to be something else. Well, and I think what Shannon was saying about how students who maybe haven't been identified or don't necessarily have anything that is challenging them as a student in a classroom, and yet as individuals, maybe I like to watch a video and I get more out of that video and that knowledge sticks with me better, but you like to read a book and somebody else likes to listen to it on Audible or, you know, we all have different ways we prefer to learn. And when you create universal design in that full inclusive where you're thinking about every option for that student to access knowledge and engage in the curriculum or in the, the information that's being shared with them, I think that is the key of why full inclusion is so powerful and why we really need to explore it and figure out how to be aggressive in making it happen because we need every student. There's so many kids, especially post COVID I'm working with fourth and fifth graders that literally cannot read and write and not, and most districts aren't teaching handwriting anymore. Yeah. So what are our other options, right? Like, how are we going to help these kids connect? Well, and I don't want to conflate inclusion and UDL, although it's hard for me to imagine how it's hard to, for me to imagine a better way to at least at, at, at the 30,000 foot level, think about inclusion and not think about universally designed settings. They seem to go hand in hand. Right. And so if you go from there, the, the, the top line in the UDL framework is all about, if you go across it, it talks about expert learners who are strategic and resourceful and all these different, you know, if you go across, but it's the idea that we're not actually doing things for kids. We're providing options for students to become good strategic learners who make good decisions about how best to learn, right? This is why UDL is, and, I, and I'm a big believer that this, that learning styles was a 
big crock that got fed, <laughs> fed to us for a while mm. because because it, it didn't actually teach us anything about how to teach. Ultimately, what you don't want is you don't want to say, "Okay, you're the book reader, go have books all the time." Right. The idea is that, hey, looks like you're really good at accessing print text or maybe even text on on screens. Turns out there are some other ways to learn information, and those are going to be some things that you need to, to learn as well. I'm going to give you a range of options. If I notice that you keep going to the same options, then my job as the teacher is to help create a, sca a scaffolded learning environment where you can explore those other options at, right. with a high reasonable, high, high expectation for success, right? And so, so again, oh, I keep noticing that you're using the AI to generate your first paragraph, cool. I, I have some other options to help support you as you do some other forms of idea generation or writing or whatever those are. In a, an inclusive setting, I'm gonna be called upon to do that a lot more with a range of students who vary in a number, on a number of dimensions. If, I, if all I have is a, you know, a somewhat homogenous group of students, and certainly if all the specialist teachers are off in special town doing their magic somewhere else, there's just no impetus for us to try to, you know, kind of disrupt those learning settings and make them more, more flexible and responsive. And certainly there's no call for students then to have to try to, to learn new, new approaches and deal with it. Like you said, you, I mean, these kids have grown up in this setting and yet they can't read and write. Right. There's nothing on our techno technological landscape that says that that's a good thing, right? Right. There's really nothing about any of the technology we're dealing with that says not being able to read and write is okay. Well, and I think as an OT, clearly, I want us to always teach handwriting. <laughs> I feel like it, it has to do with the connections that happen between the eyes and the hands and how the brain is developing. And I see that. But I think across many levels, even though we were forced into virtual learning, we found things that work about it and that are good. And then we found things that can be a little bit of a crutch and keep us from gaining skills with kids. But I think when we're thinking about full inclusion and making sure that things are accessible, for me, it, it just does kind of flow seamlessly with the idea of UDL that, okay, so we're going to make sure that you have these options built in. So if you're a student who needs the text read out loud to you, you have a way to do that without waiting for a person to come do that. Because at the end of the day, we want kids to have a problem in front of them and then a list of things that they can do or a variety of tools that they can pull from to solve those problems. And some of those are technology and some of them aren't. And some of those are working in a team and some of them are working individually. And so I think UDL is one of those pieces of inclusion when we're thinking about how do we give access, how do we give those tools, and how do we maximize independence. And when we have students of every ethnicity and every background and every socioeconomic and every skill level, if we can bunch them together, I mean, that's humanity. And we're learning how to accept one another and work with one another and still move forward without making judgment. And that is an issue that we, we teach kids, you know, when they, when they get closed-minded or when they 
hit a brick wall and can't move through. We kind of teach sometimes, not intentionally. And so I feel like inclusion and a lot of times with UDL, we're trying to teach kids, okay, if you hit a brick wall, so go around it, go over it, go under it. Like, and that's sort of the concept. And I think when we look at worldwide testing, like the PISA testing, that's what they're testing. How well do you problem solve? Right. And that's what they're looking at for long-term outcomes. Well, and, you know, again, an inclusive setting says just by example and by, by fact, of, but just by fact of being that using resources, using tools, using what we would call in, in special town accommodations and modifications, that that's a given, that that's just what people do. You know, I was one right. of my, the districts that I'm working with in this larger grant we have, they were talking about the, the, the science teachers, middle school science, she does a lot of stuff on, on Google Classroom. And we were asked, talking about screen readers, right? So the mm -hmm. kids, and she's like, she did some digging. Bottom line is the district has them, they're available. They're only available for kids who have it put into their IEP. And I'm like, well, that's dumb. And so a couple, a week or so goes by, the kids with IEPs got them on their, installed on their, on their Chromebooks or whatever. Okay, well, now they won't use them. Yes, that's because the problem. Nobody else, nobody else is using I'm like, okay, so this is why this is, when I said it was dumb, that's why it was dumb. Is that, A, it wasn't even on the ones for the kids who deserved it, according to their IEPs. But then once it gets there, they ain't going to use them because they are middle school kids and middle school kids are weird. And they don't want to <laughs> do that stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, of course, they're not going to do it. So, you know, in, in a good you know, and again, this is where it takes a long time. You build up the culture over time. You build up just the norms that say every kid in this classroom has needs that vary from time to time. And screen readers, for example, are just a tool that any kid may choose to use. Right. You know, and, you know, this is, this goes back a long time ago when I was co-teaching at the high school level, you know, my, my English teacher partner and I, we did it so often as you know, we we'd, we'd taught so many classes together that we built that sort of thing into, I didn't know the term U UDL at that point. This is way right. dark ages and all this. I didn't know, but, but what we did is the kinds of things that I was technically there to do as the special ed teacher just became the fabric of the classroom. And every kid at one point or another took advantage of those resources because they realized it was a way for them to be successful. And we had lots of people really grouchy with us. People next door, <laughs> teachers next door. Oh, so those kids just get to do whatever. I guess that, I guess you're just gonna, why don't you just write their papers for them? I mean, literally people would get really fed up about it. Like we, like, no, it's not that. It's that we're, we are just creating a classroom where success is reasonably expected by using tools, that's all. I'm sorry. Well, and at the end of the day, I don't know about you. I use Grammarly. I use it on my emails. I use it when I'm right. writing letters and things because I am going quickly and I'm at work and I need to be professional and I don't want spelling errors. And so at the end of the day, as adults, we're using these things. Why would we not teach kids how to use them wisely? Yeah. And I think you were showing us videos in the training of different districts <laughs> and different ways that they're implementing Full inclusion in the classroom, co-teaching. There, there's an awesome book called The Bold School Method. And I can't say this gentleman's last name. I'm so sorry because I'm a huge fan. But he talks about we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like that 
concept. There are methodologies that we have that are long, long standing that are successful, but we need to infuse it with what's current stations, co-teaching, you know, all of those things, small groups, all of those things are powerful. And we need to help teachers really have the structure in which they can do those things together. And I think, I think in the videos, was it Nevada? You had some schools from Nevada. Yeah. Yeah. And so I know that there's districts across the country that are implementing some of these things and people who've been doing it long enough, they really have some good feedback about how to be successful at it, what's working, what's not working, going out into the world, finding those books, asking people, connecting with your university and the program that you have to get some of those resources. Those are all steps that schools and districts can take. And I think at the end of the day, nationally, we need to make some shifts and we need to be thinking about how are we going to be the most successful, not and and it's not that I want to get rid of all testing and I understand the place for it, but how do we find the balance, right? And looking at full inclusion, maybe it's time to say we can't keep doing the same thing. COVID taught us that we need to be better prepared <laughs> right. for how students can learn when they don't have a teacher in front of them that's, you know, the one that's giving them, okay, now do this, now do this. How do we build those skills? for problem solving and finding how to get done what you need to get done in the best possible way. And I feel like full inclusion is thinking about those things in a new, from a new perspective. And I just really love the training that you guys did because you started with beliefs. And it was interesting to me kind of sitting back and seeing what teachers were saying. It was funny to me how teachers were talking about how it's so frustrating when they're trying to teach in class and kids are talking. And yet I watched those same teachers talking on and off the entire day while you were presenting. And I was like, you know, we're all, we're all human. We all do the same things, you know? So I I felt like the training was really powerful in the way that you set it up with, you know, here are ideas and here are, you know, then give us feedback about what you think will work and not work because we have to get people to go through all of those problems in their own head and really choose to be invested. You can't force somebody to get excited about it. But if you talk them through that, their beliefs and then the ideas, and then what are the pros and cons? I feel like you really took them full circle. Well, and to be honest, one of the things I've learned and we've learned at our our center over the years is that that belief and skill thing, that varies for, for teachers as well. Like there are some teachers who really, really, really want and need Give me the rationale, explain the why, give me the theory, give me the research, give me give me the sky high stuff. I'm not going anywhere with you until I have that. <laughs> uh, conversely, there are teachers like, shut up. I don't give a rat's about any of that. Tell me how to do this thing tomorrow. I need to go. And and both are completely legit approaches. And so we we try to we try to go both both directions with folks because. You know, if you're a teacher who really wants just to see, get the nuts and bolts about how something's done, a lot of times you're the one who will really quickly then connect it to those reasons, right? And, mm-hmm. and vice versa. So it's it's important for us to really try to to find that middle ground and and see where, you know, meet teachers where they live. And, and again, that's why we really try to get into teacher's classroom after a session like that is to, you know, find find that place where it connects to them their experiences, their, their students, their 
for content, etc. I really wish I could have been part of this training. I feel like yeah, I missed out. Well, yeah, Shannon's in Durango and she's in the Durango 9R school district up in Colorado. So we're oh. we're in two different districts. I used to be there. That's how we know each other. Oh, it was a great training. Well, I, I really <laughs> do appreciate like that. It. Well, we love doing it, and and you know, I, I I'm happy to go to Colorado sometime. I don't know where is Durango? I would love it. Where is Durango? It's like Ooh. Southwest Colorado. Okay. Yeah, it's about twenty miles uh, north of the state line. So, James, really quick, I'm going to recap. Huh? Best. I, if yeah, if I didn't answer all of your questions, you should hit me for anything that's missing. So your your thoughts are. If a district is serious about wanting to look at, are they inclusive and can they get more fully inclusive? The best place to start is to contact you or other districts that have gone fully inclusive and look at the implementation side first yes. to make a plan. Absolutely. And then you can definitely include administrators and really talking from their perspective, as well as training for teachers and the people who are sort of in the trenches. And that the book by Tell Me Marilyn. Well, Marilyn Friend has a, a I would I would just go to uh, the best resources is, is I think it's MarilynFriend.com. And, and she has a number of books. She has videos. She has some free resources. She has a number of things that are really explicit and tied to co-teaching that are really, there's, there's so much there that she's done that, that's super valuable. The National Implementation Research Network is Nern, they're out of University of North Carolina. They they do a lot of this work on, and it doesn't have to be about inclusion or code. It can be it can be any number of sure. you know, interventions that you're trying to bring into your district. And then CAST with the UDL work is, is super critical as well. And again, you know, I it, it's it's always hard for districts to get something started the right way, and that's okay. I mean, just you know, don't beat yourself up over it or don't worry about it, but just say. You know, the, I, I went through at leadership programs and, and, you know, they're not wrong. You start really with a real clear vision of what it is you want to create. And sometimes that means you're coming up with that vision after you've already started down the path. <laughs> but I do think that that's super, super important. Like, you know, where do we want to be in five years? What yeah. do we want most little school schools to look like in five years in, in, in terms of inclusion? And if, and, and that should be both qualitative and quantitative definitions like you know and i mean we could we didn't even talk inclusion wise in terms of social and emotional and and, and those sorts of things we didn't even begin to scratch those surfaces today let's just take it as read that we know that students do better behaviorally we know that kids do better socially we know that their peer outcomes are better and that we barely even got it. but but still like what is it if you're going to be go for to be a more or full inclusive district what are you going to say to somebody when they say why? Well, you should be able to answer that. You should be able to say, well, we expect students to have this experience. We expect student outcomes to look like this. We expect teachers to have these outcomes. We expect teachers to look like this. And then, you know, then you start again going through those questions. Is is co-teaching a good fit for us in order to pursue inclusion? It may or may not be. I don't know. You know, is UDL a good idea for us? I don't know. As soon as you start thinking like that, then you start going through your curriculum and your other programs. Do we have a, oh, we have a STEM initiative. Okay, cool. What's our, how does STEM align or not with 
our inclusive practices that we're pursuing? How does, I mean, we, we have a this rural district that has this drone licensure program so their high school kids can graduate with a FAA drone license, drone oh, wow. license. And it's really great because these kids out in the rural, like they're using drones and farming quite a bit now, right? So these kids are able to graduate with these things, but like, okay, so from an inclusive perspective, how is that, like if you're universally designing that, is that program accessible to as many kids as possible? And if not, what do you need to do? Right. So anyway, that, but yeah, those are the, those are, I have a clear vision, define what you mean qualitative quantitatively, figure out what, you know, what ways you want to pursue it, make sure you get the training, make sure that training happens methodically and that it, it really, you know, Joyce and Showers are the, the two researchers who, who, you know, really pioneered a lot of what we think about in terms of professional development, but it, it, it's that work that says it's not just about a guy with a power yammering about something. It's really <laughs> about getting into schools and classrooms and providing feedback within the context. And that's, you know, if, if you don't, if you're not going to bother with that, then fine, but just recognize that your outcomes are probably not going to be what you think they would be. Well, and I love that we started this interview with you talking about the great success academically for all participants. And I think in the videos we were watching during the training, the teachers were coming back saying, you know, in the beginning, we kind of got tripped up. It took us a while to figure out and get our rhythm. But now it's so much more pleasurable to teach because we're seeing such good results and we can work together and it's not just one person on an island trying to figure it out. So I think there's multiple benefits to teachers, to administrators, to students, to families. And at the end of the day, we're looking for how do we support kids? How do we support education in growing and being better? And I love that we're thinking social emotional outcomes. We're thinking academic outcomes. We're thinking about problem-solving skills and those outcomes and independence. So I think all of those things are part of looking at inclusion. And I love the work that you and your team are doing. And I'm really excited. We're going to follow Las Lunas over a few seasons and kind of watch how they transition. Uh, We'll be speaking with Susan Chavez about sort of what promoted this thought because she was sort of the person who really got the ball rolling And she'll be taking us through kind of as we go through as a district, what that's looking like, what changes they're having to make so that other people who are listening can can kind of see that and watch. Give us a couple districts or schools or states that you've seen some really, really good full inclusive models. The the best and first one that I would send to is it's Bartholomew Consolidated School District, I believe. It's BCSC. It's in Columbus, Indiana. So they're just one county, two counties over from us here in Bloomington. They are the school, the the UDL model school district. They are as close to full inclusion as I think we have in Indiana. They have been using UDL as their basic operating principle. I mean, every again, every decision is filtered through universal design. And that's been that way for over 15 years. So they are doing some really, really, really good work. I don't know if I would count them as a full inclusion district, but Greater Clark Schools down in Jefferson, around Jeffersonville, Indiana, they're doing some pretty cool work. In fact, I got a neat email from one of my teachers. We, we, we haven't been there in like five years, but this teacher emailed me out of the blue the other day saying, hey, we just did this thing that you guys were doing and 
it's still going really well. I'm like, oh, that makes me happy because a lot of times you leave and you're like, oh, they, you guys still doing that? I don't know. Um, but I would start with Bartholomew. There's a, there's a couple of districts in Massachusetts and one in Rhode Island that have some really good UDL pieces going on that I that I I highly I, I can't I, I keep putting my mic. I, I I can't remember the names of the districts off the top of my head. Okay, that's awesome though. And that way people can kind of do a little digging around if if it's something that's maybe in their area, it might give them quicker access to people. And one thing that's great about education, and I'm finding this to be true, we're reaching out to all kinds of people to get information. And most people are really willing to throw their hat in the ring to share what they know, because we all want the same thing. We want kids to get a quality education. We need a version of teachers pay teachers. It's be like superintendents pay superintendents or something. <laughs> like, like Right. Well, thank you. We're going to make sure we put in our notes with this episode, some of those resources that you listed so people can, I, I know when I'm listening and I'm usually in the car, so that way they can go back and find it again. And we'll make sure we have contact information for you and, and your program as well. Thank you so much for your time and talking Absolutely. with us today. Yeah, thank you. All right. That was a really good interview. I found some interesting information that I didn't know yet as well as pointing out some things that I think are important. Yeah, I really like the idea of inclusion throughout the school. His example of, well, Target for one, even though that's not school, but his example of the lunchroom, of making it fully accessible yeah. for every student to participate and engage the same way. Yes, and I've seen where they do that on playgrounds with some of the um, speech communication systems where they have pictures and things that students can access on the playground. Sure, those are always great ideas. And I love that he talked about not constantly trying to find something new to initiate, but maybe find those initiatives you already have in your district that are working and use those to as catalysts to support inclusion. I think that was also really powerful. He also talked about if your district is thinking about going full inclusion, now is the time to like do your research and maybe contact somebody like him who can help your district through work through that process. Absolutely. You could save yourself a lot of time by not reinventing the wheel, but finding tried and true mechanisms that work. And they can offer that to you at the Indiana University Institute on Disability and Community. And remember, together, together we, we can, can do better. better. See you next time. Bye.